Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Nick West. He's the Chief Medical Officer and Divisional Vice President of Global Medical Affairs at Abbott Vascular at uh, Abbott. And we're going to talk about uh, his work. So, Nick, thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about your background, and then I want to ask you at Abbott, uh, what's your work about currently? Sure. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Well, you've already uh, stated my title. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of the Vascular Division of Abbott. Um, it's a relatively recent role for me. Um, until less than 12 months ago, I was a practicing interventional cardiologist, so I'm fresh out of clinical practice into the world of industry. Uh, and the area we're going to be talking about today is of particular interest to me. Not only is it a strategic aim of Abbott Vascular, but it was one of my research interests. So it is of particular importance on a subject, no pun intended. Well, the nice thing is, is it sounds like you're going to be working uh, directly on the things that you are researching that you're interested in. So that's great that all the things come together for you, right? Yeah, great. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, this was a great opportunity for me. Many of my interests align very closely with those Abbott Vascular. Um, Back in the day, you may remember the era of uh, bioresorbable scaffolds or bioabsorbable coronary stents. That was an interest of mine because my background is in endothelial biology. But I've also been very interested in uh, intracoronary imaging techniques. And I believe you spoke to my colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Raposa, recently about optical coherence tomography or OCT imaging. And of course, the third part of this, of course, is the measurement of uh, intracoronary physiological parameters. I mean, we're going to talk about, I think, in a bit more detail in just a moment. Yeah, let's get into that. So what, what kind of parameters are you trying to measure? Okay, sure. So I guess to dive into the world of, of coronary physiology, I'll, I'll give a very brief background for, uh, I guess, yourself and, and the listeners who, who are not familiar with this. But uh, there are methods by which a cardiologist, an interventional cardiologist, such as myself when I was in practice, could assess the severity of a coronary narrowing if you like, in vivo with a live patient on the table. Now, lots of patients go through non-invasive imaging tests like CT scans, maybe exercise treadmill tests, stress echocardiograms, before they wind up coming, if you like, to the point of the needle, which is the cardiac catheterization laboratory, where people like me would uh, poke a little tube into either the wrist or previously in the groin to access the coronary circulation, the actual arteries that supply the heart muscle, and then image those arteries using a technique that's known as coronary angiography, which essentially is shooting a, a radio opaque dye that can be seen with X-ray imaging down the coronary arteries to look at those vessels. Now, historically, cardiologists relied on the power of their eyesight to define how tight and narrowing was. It was very much like you know, uh, sort of plumbing, if you like. You, you'd see a blockage or a narrowing, and then you'd go ahead and fix it. But of course, the human eye uh, is not terribly accurate. 
uh, in the region of 30% to, would you believe it, 80% narrowings in vessels. We're very good at less than 30% and we're pretty good at greater than 80%. But then there's a very large gray area simply because vessels don't narrow like your pipes when they get full of limescale or, or, or silt or similar. They don't necessarily narrow in a concentric fashion. It can be very eccentric. And so you can be fooled by some of these two-dimensional pictures you would get with an angiogram. And this is where measurements of intracoronary physiology come in. So, oh, so you, you may be looking down an, an artery and I guess you think it's turning to the right, but it's not. It's just, let's say, narrowing on the left. So it appears like it's turning to the right. Yeah, I mean, that sort of thing. I mean, and, and also sim- very put very simply, it's a bit like looking at things from a different angle. There are only so many angles you can take an, a two-dimensional X-ray projection from. And if you don't take enough views, you may not see the view that shows you either that narrowing in its tightest part or even in its non-tightest part. So what happened probably about 30 or 40 years ago now is people began to be interested in the concept of intracoronary physiology. So actually measuring the pressure directly within the coronary artery and without going through all the history, essentially this can be achieved by the use of a special wire. Now, as you and some of the listeners may understand, if you have something like a coronary stent procedure, a coronary angioplasty where a balloon is inflated and then a stent placed, that's all done over a very small guide wire that actually goes down the heart artery, the coronary artery itself. Subtle advancements and, uh, and technological innovation to those wires enabled a pressure sensor to be put at the tip of those wires. So you can measure the pressure, if you like, down the bottom of the coronary artery with the wire, you can measure the pressure at the top of the artery with the plastic tube that you've inserted via the wrist or the groin. And therefore, you can effectively measure the pressure gradient in very simplistic terms across that artery. And therefore, you can work out whether the narrowing you can see is causing a problem or not, and whether our eye is deceiving us or not deceiving us. So that's so what, uh, the back. Sorry. Are you looking, are you looking for like pressure drops? across a, yeah. um, like a partial occlusion? Yeah. And what, what would that tell you if you find one or not? Correct. So essentially, that tells you whether or not an artery is causing a problem that we call ischemia, which is a lack of blood flow to the heart muscle. And traditionally, that is measured. It doesn't matter how we derive this, but it, it, it's, a, it's a ratio that is called the fractional flow reserve, or the FFR. So that's a way of, if you like, working out whether this narrowing that you can see is causing a problem to that patient. And we have a wealth of data that shows that if the FFR is above 0.8, i.e. if the blood flow is 80% or, or greater at the bottom end of the vessel, patients do very well managed with tablets alone. And if it's less than 0.8 or the flow is less than 80%, that is usually an indication that something needs to be fixed, whether it's either with a stent or alternatively with bypass surgery if there are multiple narrowings. So that, if you like, is the history of coronary physiology, and that's pretty well established now. It's in all the international guidance. But what we have been interested in recently is something slightly different. And if I may, I'll just explain a little bit more, having put that basic framework for coronary physiology into play. Can I, can I do that? Yeah, I just had one more question. Um, what if you have uh, a bunch of partial blockages in series? Do you take out the one that's furthest downstream first or the, the one that's upstream first. And then, you know, the increased pressure, how does that affect like downstream ones? You know, what do you do in a situation huh. like that? 
You you ask a very good question, and in fact, you've given the answer that we used to do. I remember when I was in training, that was exactly what you were taught to do. Because you had a simple ratio, you either went with what your gut reaction to which the tightest part was, and you fixed that first and then measured again, or as you say, you start from the bottom and work upwards for serial lesions. Um, <laughs> probably the uh, the measurement and management of serial or tandem lesions within the coronary artery assessed by pressure wire may be slightly out of the scope of this podcast. However, um, it is a, a topic that we have derived various algorithms and various new mechanisms, including pulling back the wire during one of these procedures to measure the, the relative pressure drop at each narrowing. But that's, that's if you like, a, a subject. It's kind of like a maybe an advanced level for coronary physiology, but it is something of interest. And you've hit the nail very firmly on the head as to one of the one of the previously unanswered questions, which is now being addressed with some of the advancements. Okay. But I think, well, yeah, but I think yeah. one of the... Th- so one of the things that we're interested in now is something called coronary microvascular dysfunction, or CMD as the acronym is. Now, CMD is of interest, as I say, it was one of my research interests, because although people got interested in coronary physiology in the main vessels, the main heart arteries, what we refer to as the epicardial vessels, those main arteries, and patients generally have, or human beings have three of those, those main arteries make up less than 10% of the blood supply to the heart muscle. And that's a fascinating statistic. So 90% of the heart's blood supply is from blood vessels you cannot see from a coronary angiogram because they are too small. And you'll know this, I'm sure, from, from basic biology and other heart system and other sort of vascular systems throughout the body. Of course, blood vessels, they narrow, they branch, and they split and they divide and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And 90% of the heart's blood supply is carried out by what we call the coronary microvasculature, these tiny vessels. They're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 microns in diameter, sometimes a little bit big, up to 500 microns, so half a millimeter in diameter. And of course, if you can't see disease in these vessels, you don't know it's there or not there. And there's, a, there's an evolving understanding that many patients that suffer with angina, which is the chest discomfort that patients get when they have coronary heart disease, many patients actually may not have traditional narrowings that require a stent or bypass surgery. And of course, in the past, they've been told there's either nothing wrong with them or their outlook is excellent or not to worry about it. It's something else. But now we know you can actually get not only disease, but also dysfunctional malfunction of these vessels, which causes exactly the same kind of problems in terms of a reduction of blood supply to the heart, but without seeing those narrowings that can be fixed with a stent or a bypass operation. So, oh, that's interesting. questions. Have, yeah, have you been able to develop an algorithm then? Um, if I have like a, a 35% loss, and yes, you can see I have uh, two lesions that are you know, partially occluded. Without even clearing them, can you mathematically calculate, let's say based on the morphology of the lesions and the occlusions, how much is the hidden part of my, my missing blood flow that's in the, the small microvessels? Well, that's, that's exactly right. And that's what uh, we are talking about today. It's the interest in measuring microvascular function. So if you can't see these blood vessels, how can you get some information about what the blood supply is doing and how those vessels are affecting the blood supply to the heart muscle. So I think that the important thing, again, to restate is that an angiogram is great. And I spent my entire career performing angiograms and putting stents in. But 
there is a significant proportion of patients, maybe half the patients that come to the cardiac cath lab with a presumptive diagnosis of angina that do not have any tight narrowings that require a stent or bypass surgery. Now, we believe from the data that we have that's out there that up to half of those patients may have microvascular dysfunction. And as I said to you before, although historically we have believed that these patients have a very benign prognosis, there's accumulating data that this simply is just not the case. Not only do these patients have terrible quality of life because they're still getting chest pain, they've been told by their doctor they can't have a stent, they can't have bypass surgery, they should keep taking tablets. There's lots of evidence that they leave the workforce early. So that's bad for, uh, for, for healthcare economics and, and global economics for workforces in countries. Of course, these patients present recurrently to emergency departments, to their family practitioners, to specialists for multiple tests, trying to get to the bottom of the root cause of this. So they're very expensive for healthcare economies and for, and for countries' economies. So not only the quality of life is a, is a problem, we now we have evidence that these patients are at higher risk of heart attack. And in some cases, they're at higher risk of dying prematurely. So really, the question is, how do we diagnose this? And then how do we treat it? So, okay, so one of the things... One of the things question that, here. One yeah, question sure. I've heard, you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that stents don't really seem to help people. I mean, uh, very rarely, maybe it's because... Uh, you said 90% of the blood flow to the heart is uh, in the microvasculature. So even if uh, you know, the, a full 10% of a heart's problem is in the, uh, the large vessels and you clear it, that might not be enough to, you know, for someone to live properly. They might still only be operating at 30%, 40%, 50%. You know? Sure. And, and you, you hit a very interesting problem on the head here. So I think it is fair to say that the many people that present with angina and are found to have a tight narrowing or narrowings in their major or epicardial arteries that can be seen at angiography, actually, a stent or bypass surgery will treat those patients most of the time, in the majority of cases. But I think it's fair to say that in microvascular dysfunction, so narrowings in those minor arteries, they don't always coexist with those in the major arteries. They can occur on their own. They can occur in combination. And I think what we're interested in is trying to drill down and focus on the at-risk groups for microvascular dysfunction. So if I can just outline to you, I think that the three areas that are of most of interest to us, number one is those patients who, as I say, have either no coronary disease or very minor coronary disease, but still have symptoms of angina, and they may have evidence of, as I say, ischemia or lack of blood flow to the heart muscle. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's a syndrome that is now referred to as Inoka, which is ischemia with no obstructive coronary artery disease. Inoka is the term that is used these days. So that's a very interesting group. So they have no major vessel disease, but it's all small vessel disease. You're absolutely right. You could get coexistence of the two conditions. And so if you treat a coronary artery with a stent or with a bypass, you may not get complete resolution of pain. And this is another area we're very interested in. There's good evidence from lots of stent and even surgical trials that up to 20% of patients one year on after a stent or a bypass operation still have angina. So it has made no difference. But that's not every patient. So it sounds like about 80% of patients have had good relief, but maybe 20% 
they haven't had everything treated. So that's the second group we're interested in. There's post, what we call post-revascularization angina. The third group that's very interesting, in, and, and, and we probably won't cover this today because it's almost a separate topic entirely, is that we know that when you have a heart attack, and of course, a heart attack is very different to stable angina, where you have a fixed narrowing in one of the arteries or some of the arteries. A heart attack, you will have a narrowing on which has formed a clot, a blood clot, what we call thrombus. And of course, in the, in the course of a heart attack, bits of that thrombus can, what we call embolize or travel downstream into the microvasculature and block some of these tiny channels. And we already know that what we, what's called microvascular obstruction, so those small vessels being actually physically blocked with blood clots and debris from, from the, the blockage in the main artery, we know that the more microvascular obstruction you have, the larger the heart attack and the more damage will be caused to your heart. So this is another area where it would be very interesting if we could find an acute treatment for microvascular obstruction, we can limit the size of heart attacks. And that, that's, just, that's a, a very interesting story. And there's some early research looking at that. But I guess that, so I've told you three areas that are interesting, patients with no obstructive coronary disease, patients with angina or chest discomfort after revascularization and those after a heart attack. But I guess coming back to where we are, how do you measure this? How do you even start to make this diagnosis without a tool that you can use to measure it? And this is where our pressure wire comes in again. So the wire that you can use to measure that gradient we talked about earlier. Our pressure, there are several pressure wires on the market, but ours happens to have also a temperature sensor at the bottom end. And you may say, well, how's that going to help? But the answer is very simply, you can perform what's called a thermodilution uh, test. So that would mean you would inject some room temperature saline, so salt water, into the top of the artery, and effectively you can time the transit down to that temperature sensor at the bottom end. So as well as measuring pressure, we can measure the time. And of course, the time gives us an idea of the resistance, if you like, downstream. Does that make sense? If you've got blockages downstream, yeah. if you like, it's, it's like if you're trying to pull the plug out of the bathtub, if all the pipes uh, downstream of the bathtub are clogged up, the bath water won't go down. So therefore, we can measure how tight the microvascular circulation is by the time it takes for that bolus of saline to get from the top of the coronary to that temperature sensor. So you'll see, okay, so when it crosses the sensor at the bottom, you'll see a pressure, uh, sorry, a temperature drop all of a sudden, and then you'll know, okay, it's here. That's right. Well, we actually, well, what you do is you measure the time because the tighter the microcirculation is, the longer it takes the blood to transit the coronary. Because when you squirt that, that, that saline in at the top of the vessel, it's only going to travel down as fast as the blood flow in the vessel. And if the blood is flowing slowly in the vessel because the small vessels downstream of the big vessel are tightened up and are very tensed up, if you like, the blood flow will be slower. If the microvasculature is relaxed and open, that saline will whiz down the vessel and there'll be a very fast transit time. So we measure, yeah. if you like, the microvasculature. It's called the index of microvascular resistance. It is simply that. And a high number means you've got lots of resistance. So the microvasculature is effectively, it may not be physically constricted, it may be blocked or narrowed. But if it's not and it's open, it's wide open, the transit time will be very fast and will have almost no resistance. Does that make sense? How do you know if, if you're in a large vessel, though, how do you know that you're looking at the action of the small vessels? 
because the small vessels are what will determine. The small vessels are the, the final sort of common pathway. If you look at the resistance in the major vessel compared to the microvasculature, in the same way that the, the, the major vessel only supplies about 10% of the heart's uh, blood supply and 90% is in the small vessels, probably only 5 to 10% of the overall resistance to flow in the coronary is in the major vessel. Most of it is in the microvasculature. So you know it's not really coming from that top vessel. But then again, the flow is, uh, even though it's 10%, a lot of flow is in that one vessel versus one microvascular you know, vessel, only a tiny amount of flow is in it. But in the aggregate, you know, they carry 90%. So sure. it's like it's like the dark mar- the uh, dark matter of the heart is what it's sounding like, you know? Absolutely. And it's a silent killer because it's under it's been underdiagnosed and underobserved. And it's important to point out, it's not just disease in one of these microvessels. Microvascular disease tends to affect large areas of these vessels. And as I say, it can be an acute thing for things like blood clot and thrombus blocking those vessels physically, but also it can be an adaptive issue where there is either diffuse narrowing of all of these segments, or alternatively, there may be a dynamic element where these blood vessels will constrict and relax in response to physiological stimuli. In fact, some of these patients with uh, this chest pain often will get symptoms in non-traditional circumstances. So not necessarily with exercise, they may get it with emotion or similar. So um, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm do we have diagrams of where the microvascular enters the heart? Is it just all over the place? Is it concentrated in certain areas? As, you know, are there inlets that, again, are concentrated heavily in certain parts of the heart and others are sparse? Like, what's the visual look yeah. like? And, you know, can autopsy show it? What could show it? Uh, again, you wouldn't see it with an autopsy apart from with, uh, with a microscope. But if you were to do, I mean, there are some beautiful images that you, you can find in the literature. And it's a shame we're not on a video call. I could share it. But... If, you, if some of those uh, post-mortem specimens that we've seen where the coronaries have been injected, for example, with latex or similar, you see those large arteries that you can see as, as a big tube. And then you see these enormous networks that go over the entire heart muscle. Remember, the heart is a pump. It's a muscular pump. It's like any other muscle in the body. And a muscle cannot function without oxygenated blood. So the whole of that muscle has to have an intricate network of these microvessels supply every part of it with oxygenated blood and that really tells you how important the microcirculation is well i was thinking too that again a large amount of the volume will go through some of the major vessels so if one's blocked pretty heavily and then you unblock it all of a sudden now the, the smaller vessels may you know each one individually experience a huge rush of extra volume because each one only holds a tiny bit so when i'm thinking about let's say blood pressure you know, going up or down in a large vessel, it's it would go up, you know, by a few points. But in a small vessel, I wonder if the pressure can jump or fall dramatically because it's so small. A little extra volume may cause it to go and blow open, maybe. You know, sure. And and this is this is an area of lots of research at the moment because clearly, even with these tools that will allow us to diagnose the presence of microvascular dysfunction you know, it doesn't tell us the mechanism. So you're absolutely right. There may be a relationship between a narrowing in the, in the major artery in the minor vessels. But it, interestingly, whilst what we call the coronary flow reserve, that's the heart's entire ability to increase blood supply, the coronary flow reserve can be changed by fixing one of those narrowings. As you've said, there's an aggregate blood supply to the whole heart. 
But interestingly, in many cases, the index of the microvascular resistance, so how the microvasculature behaves, is completely independent of the epicardial vessel. And that's simply because, although you fix, you're absolutely right, those vessels are big, and although they are only responsible for 10% of the blood flow to the heart, it's all these microvessels and their function, and they're all downstream of this, they're not separate parts. It's like a, it's like a, a freeway that then branches and side roads and side roads and side roads and side roads to get smaller and smaller and smaller that supply the whole heart. So they are, they are linked, but the function of those two systems may be somewhat independent. And you're right in a simplistic way, you can think that if you open the major one, maybe it'll just open the floodgates. But we know that's not necessarily the case from measurements that have been taken. And, and we, can, we can see that. We've seen that before. And that's one of the reasons, as you pointed out earlier on, that if you have the coexistence of both narrowings in the major vessels and the minor vessels, just by fixing the major vessels, the patients may still have angina because they've still got microvascular dysfunction. It also tells me, too, like even monitoring of people's heart health probably needs to be changed quite a bit because if I go and, you know, I do a, I don't know, I, I don't know if you'd see this, you know, if I do a stress test, everything looks okay. The doctor just looks at my macroscopic vessels says, oh, everything looks fine, but I'm not feeling so good. That's being missed. I mean, is there any estimation of what's being missed in terms of patient care and how much better it could be if you could somehow get a window into these, uh, these fields of vessels, the microvessels? Sure. So, I mean, you raise a very interesting question. I say this is where it gets slightly complex, simply because the non-invasive tests, as you described, your doctor might put you on a treadmill. It might put you in, a, in an MRI scanner. You may have a nuclear scan, a test, a, a thallium or a SPECT scan, which are standard non-invasive tests to look for the presence of what we refer to as ischemia, that lack of blood flow to the heart muscle. Now, even in patients who have ischemia, so you may have an abnormal stress test. You may not have an abnormal stress test, but you may have one, and that will cause your physician to say, go to the cardiac catheterization laboratory. I think you need a stent or a bypass operation. So, of course, you go there, but as I've said, half of the patients who go there, even with abnormal, what we call functional testing, non-invasive testing, they won't have narrowings in the major arteries, and you can only find out whether they have microvascular dysfunction by using the pressure wire and doing this thermal dilution measurement that I mentioned before, you could guess they may have microvascular dysfunction, but equally, historically, people just guessed that maybe it was a problem with the gastrointestinal tract or the chest wall, or maybe it was in the patient's mind. And this is one of the big problems. It's quite a young area in terms of research, but we now know, as, I've, as I outlined earlier, that actually this is far from a benign condition. There are, there are lots of healthcare implications, as you say, and unless you do this test to diagnose microvascular dysfunction, you're never going to know. But I guess the next question is, so you diagnose it, so then what do you do about it? Well, sticking with the diagnosis part, why not try to do a, a, a clinical trial where you get like 18 to 20 run year olds, you know, they're probably all pretty healthy, find a way to like fluorescently tag or tags, you know, their blood cells, and then get a picture of, you know, the major areas. I mean, you probably couldn't call things a blood vessel anymore, but you can probably call like these forests of or clumps of uh, microvasculature that occur at different spots and label them, you know, geographically. And then you get a picture, a lay of the land, and that might give you insight into older people and have problems. Well, you know, people tend to have these like three or four clumps, you know, around the left ventricle, and you know, but ten clumps around this one. And I mean, is there any way to? 
again, to map this out? So uh, that's an interesting question. But in fact, the regionality of this simply applies to the three major heart arteries. And as I've said, the whole heart muscle is supplied by microvasculature. They're everywhere. They're, it's, it's all pervasive. So it is highly unusual for it to be very, very regional. The only time it's very regional is often in the setting of a heart attack where you will get microvascular dysfunction in the area the heart attack is occurring, in the area of the muscle that is being subtended by the blocked major artery. So that's when you will get some regionality to it. Otherwise, it appears to be, as far as our knowledge goes at the moment, it is a systemic thing. It may vary in its importance in different areas of the heart. And although we're talking about it in terms of having microvascular dysfunction or not having microvascular dysfunction, it's, it's far from a binary entity. There is, if you like, a, there is a gradient, if you like, as you can imagine, that, that governs how tight the microcirculation is. So it might be very tight in some people and not quite so tight in others. Um, so going back to your question about a clinical trial, so the trial, the kind of trial you propose, I think it may be viewed as unethical if it was 19 to 20 year olds, but there have been trials that have been done recently in the focus of lots of interest about how we look at non-traditional models of coronary artery disease. And, and one of those trials was performed in Scotland at the University of Glasgow uh, by Professor Colin Berry, and that trial is called Cormica. And he did a very interesting study. What he did was he took patients going to the cath lab, as I've described, with a good story for angina, often with abnormal stress imaging. They went on to have their angiogram and they had no important coronary artery disease. So all of these patients then had protocol-driven, what we refer to as provocative testing of the coronary physiology. Now, not only did they measure the microvascular function with a pressure wire, as I've described, to see how tight the microcirculation was, they also tried to provoke what we call coronary spasm, which is, if you like, involuntary contractions in the major arteries, which you can induce with, with drugs. The interesting thing is that all the patients had that provocative testing. So we could work out whether they had what we refer to as vasospastic angina, which is, uh, if you like, constrictions of the major arteries, or whether they had this disease in the very small vessels you can't see. But the interesting thing about the study, is that in half the patients, the physician was able to know that diagnosis. And so those patients had, if you like, standardized care, general advice about, well, you know, watch what you watch what you smoke, you don't smoke, watch your diet, so let's get your blood pressure under control, and given standard therapies, just as normal. But in the other group, where the physicians were told whether these patients either had no physiological abnormalities or they had microvascular disease or they had vasospastic angina, those patients could have tailored therapies targeted at each of those areas. And what the investigators found was that after 12 months of follow-up, in the group that had a definitive diagnosis and had stratified therapy according to that diagnosis, they had less angina, they had better quality of life, they had lower blood pressure, they had improved cholesterol measurements, and all the indices that we'd expect with a better outcome. Now, that study was not big enough to show a reduction in events, but it does show an improvement in quality of life and angina, which is a really important step in the diagnosis and management of this treatment, of this condition. Hmm. What were some of the stratified therapies like? 
So the stratified therapies were, and this is one of the uh, one of the arguments that, that people who don't uh, don't agree with the, the uh, invasive testing of microvascular disease, they are standard anginal therapies, but applied in a certain order, if you like. So vasospastic angina, that intermittent contraction or constriction of the major epicardial vessels, the first line treatment was what we call calcium channel blockers. And if it was microvascular angina, the first line treatment was beta blockers. But critically, the other piece of the jigsaw, without glossing over the actual therapies, is giving the patient a diagnosis. And that is really important because, of course, the patients who did not have a diagnosis, it's a very unsatisfying thing. And if you don't know what your diagnosis is, what's going to happen is if you get more symptoms, you're going to go back to your doctor. Whereas if you know what your diagnosis is and that has been made and stated and you are informed of that diagnosis, that's a very important part of the overall treatment. Um, if, a, uh, if there's a blockage when the heart pumps, is there a lag of fluid coming through? Like, you know, I'm thinking about in particular the microvasculature. You know, what if the heart pump squeezes a bunch of blood, you know, comes into the microvascular, microvasculature, it gets stopped for a moment and then the heart relaxes and it kind of maybe pulls there. Then the heart beats again and now stuff is forced through. Could you, I don't know if it's too sophisticated, but could you tell if there's a lag? in the amount of fluid that comes into a certain area, like a pulsing of the amount, and thereby yeah. infer that you know, something's going on? Well, that's exactly the way that this temperature sensor works, exactly the way that uh, we were, as we were talking earlier. Because if you like, there, it is that lag in time, and it's because of the resistance to flow in that microvasculature in, in an area of the heart muscle that, as I say, if you inject some room temperature, normal saline salt water into the artery, and then you measure the temperature as it changes down the vessel. Of course, exactly what you're saying, there will be a lag. So the higher the resistance, the slower the transit of that saline through the vessel will be. And that's a way of making this diagnosis. In addition to, to transiting slowly, is there um, you know, a, a length, let's say, I don't know, I'm just making this up, a centimeter. And you could put two small probes at you know, either side of the centimeter length. And not only would you see like a delay in the saline getting there, but once it gets there, maybe it pulses back and forth, you know, within the action of the heart, or it, it pulses in such a way that that gives you even more information in addition to transit time. Uh, sure, but a flow in the coronary arteries is, is unidirectional. So that there's, although the heart has different phases, systole obviously where it contracts, and then diastole as it relaxes, the coronary arteries fill in diastole. So if you like, if you imagine the heart muscle beating. The, the, the blood is pumped out vigorously through the aortic valve into the aorta, the main artery. The coronary arteries come off just above the left ventricle, just above the aortic valve, and they fill in diastole, but it's unidirectional flow. So they go, the blood will go down there. It doesn't wash backwards and forwards. Uh, the only time we do that is in a, is in a very uh, unusual um, situation called the no reflow phenomenon, which sometimes occurs in the context of, uh, of a heart attack of myocardial infarction. Okay. Um, okay. So one thing I would, I would just say about uh, the measurement of microvascular function, as I mentioned earlier, it's an area that I was interested in as a researcher, and it has been possible to measure microvascular function for quite some time, but it hasn't really been much of a mainstream sport. As I've said to you, the measurement of coronary physiology with the fractional flow reserve, the one that detects the, the narrowings in the major arteries, that's in every single societal guideline evidence-based, and it tells you what to treat and what not to treat. Microvascular dysfunction, 
the, the sort of the epicenter of research and interest really has been Europe. And that's not to do down researchers elsewhere. There are many researchers elsewhere, particularly in the States, that have developed a lot of the, the, the physiological concepts behind this. But in Europe, the European Society of Cardiology was the first international society to place measurement of microvascular function in its guidelines. So in the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, there is a, a, a clear suggestion that in patients who do not have obstructive coronary disease but have symptoms of angina, they should have microvascular function testing. And that's led to a resurgence of interest, if you like, in this area area of, of, of coronary uh, interrogation. And although that has been available on the pressure wire for a long time, it's only recently collaboration with a company called Coroventus to, uh, to, who have made a laptop and a wireless functionality to transmit this information about microvascular function, that this has really achieved, if you like, prime time. Uh, and this is something that is being rolled out. There's been lots of interest in Europe, but the collaboration has now been extended to worldwide. So anywhere that's currently using the pressure wire to measure epicardial major coronary artery stenosis, and as I say, it's in all the guidelines now, will also be able to use this new system, the Coroflow system, with our, the Abbott pressure wire to perform microvascular interrogations in their own cath lab. Okay. Well, very good. What, what do you think is, um, in the next few years ahead, is this what uh, is going to become just more mainstream, is identifying micro, microvascular disease and you know, more targeted treatment? Or like what's rolling out for Abbott over the next few years here that you can talk about? Sure. So, I mean, I mean, that's very interesting, if I can answer that in several parts. So I think the first thing to say is that this is one of the avenues of the future, and we have by no means completely conquered epicardial coronary disease. You know, there are many narrowings that can be very readily treated now. We, we can perform all kinds of interrogations of the coronary artery during stent procedures. You can use so-called intravascular ultrasound, or as you spoke about my colleague, optical coherence tomography, a light-based uh, imaging technique to look at the inside of blood vessels. You can use the pressure wire to give you uh, unrivaled information about the physiology of the major vessel and of the tiny vessels beyond it, the microvasculature. We can perform all kinds of things to the coronary from using rotating drills to, to get rid of very tough or calcified parts of the vessel or balloons that will fracture these plaques of calcium in order to allow stents to expand fully. So there, there are so many things that we can do, but there are still certain kinds of narrowings that require a lot of specialist treatment. And let's not assume we have completely conquered the epicardial vessel. But what this does do, this microvascular function piece, is it does open up a whole new paradigm. It's a, it's a, it's a group of patients that have been overlooked. We've believed their outlook is good. It clearly is not good. And there's an evolving understanding of this. Um, we now have the ability to diagnose this problem in the cardiac cath lab. We have early uh, concepts as to how we can treat this in a stratified manner. And as I say, giving patients a diagnosis is really, really important. So I think what the future holds for this particular area of microvascular disease is we would hope that larger studies will be able to show an impact on those traditional hard endpoints such as death, heart attack or myocardial infarction, etc. We don't have those data yet. It would be great if there were uh, specific targeted therapies that could be applied. And, you know, we know that what patients want these days is personalized therapy. They want a therapy that's good for them and their particular condition. And this really is a 
a great way of doing that. It unlocks a whole new area and it treats an underserved, uh, an underserved population. Mm. Well, very good. And Nick, what's the best way for people to follow up and to look at your work as it progresses and uh, Abbott as well? So I would encourage people to uh, follow us on LinkedIn. You could follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, we post quite frequently on some of the issues I've posted recently on, in fact, this exact problem on microvascular dysfunction and on the Coroventus collaboration. Uh, interestingly, we've just touched on this area of stratified medicine. We've also just uh, published a white paper called Beyond Intervention, which is trying to broaden the scope of, uh, of medical device and med tech companies and think a bit beyond the intervention. We've talked an awful lot today about what happens in the cardiac cath lab and how we can measure the physiology inside a blood vessel. But of course, for patients with coronary heart disease and indeed uh, disease in other vascular systems like the legs, the kidneys, or indeed uh, the carotid arteries up to the brain, their actual time when they come to the cath lab and have, or a vascular lab to have an angiographic interrogation is a tiny fragment of their entire journey. And I would encourage people, if they're interested, to have a look at this white paper where we've done a large interview around the world of 1,500 administrators, patients, and physicians to try and work out what the pain points are in the entire patient journey, rather than just focusing on the gadget that we produce, thinking more holistically about how we can improve the healthcare ecosystem. And the results really are very interesting. But it does tell us that data and particularly technological advances can really drive things forwards. Yes, you would. If I can ask you offline for a link to that paper and we'll include it in the show notes, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Be very happy to do that. Well, very good. Nick, it's a super important area of research and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for talking to me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.